As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, friends. This is Josh with This Week Select, our June 2016 episode on space stations. I like to think of it as a far-out look at living in space. I hope you enjoy it thoroughly. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry. This is Stuff You Should Know. Okay? <laughs> you sounded like Steve Brule. We were just talking about Steve Brule, mm-hmm. and that was very Brule-esque. <laughs> Brule-esque. Not burlesque. Right, Brule-esque. Brule-esque. You were saying you wish he'd do a movie. I'm surprised he has I could watch a continuous loop of Brule's Rules over sure. and over and over. Yeah. And people thought your Don't Be Dumb was an homage to that, which... Uh, or homage or a rip-off, depending on who's saying well, it. Well, was, it was neither, but it, 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 it was reminiscent of it in good ways, but I don't think that that meant it ripped it off or that you were paying tribute to it. It's definitely not intentional. It was just, you know... Two Coincidental. Great, two great things that go great together. Sure. Why can't there be both? Like Reese's Cups. Yeah. They go great with Kit Kats. <laughs> Ooh, man, that'd be good. Sure. Take two full Kit Kats and put two Reese's Cups in the middle like a sandwich. Uh-huh. I think you just came up with something. <laughs> the new s'more. The Reese Cat. Um, Chuckers. Yes. Have you ever looked to the sky <laughs> at night, seen some stars flying by, and thought, why don't we live up there? <laughs> uh, sure. Have you ever seen the the... ISS cruising? No, I used to... Um, Apparently you can. I used, Yes, I used to get uh, either texts or emails, I can't remember, that would, you just put in your, your zip code and um, it sends you text alerts when the ISS is going to be flying overhead. I thought you were going to say one of the, the lead astronauts <laughs> would just text you. To, be like, Josh, look what up? up? What are you doing? <laughs> we're over your house right now. But, I mean, basically, it, it's not from the astronaut, but it's the same thing. It's yeah. saying, like, look up uh, in this direction at this time, and you you should be able to see the ISS. Pretty neat. Yeah, I don't think we actually ever went out and looked at it, because it was always at, like, 3 in the morning or something like that. Yeah, this really, like, thrills me to no end once I started looking into this. Like, I don't, I never paid a lot of attention, and it really just dawned on me, like, people are living... In outer space. Continuously. Full time. The the International Space Station has been continuously inhabited since it was launched in 1998. Yeah. In fact, they just took their uh, 100,000th orbit of Earth. That's really neat. In May of this year. 
and uh, Expedition 47 began in March. That's so cool, man. And like we just it's like you were saying, you you don't really stop and think about it, but we're living in space now. Yeah. Humanity is extended at least into Earth's orbit, right? Sure. That's where we're living. Um and we just kind of seem to take that for granted. But that wasn't always the case, as actually. And I think the reason why we do kind of take it for granted is because the conception of living in space that we're at right now is remedial compared to where everyone expected it to be in, like, the mid-'70s yeah. when the idea of space colonization was at its peak. Yeah. I mean, NASA Ames Research Center was conducting summer studies, is what they were called, where they would just get the public really jazzed about living in space. Um, and the best you can say, or the least you can say, is that it, it um, bore some pretty awesome artist's renderings of oh, what yeah. space colonies will look like. Yeah, it seemed like every other issue of Popular Science was just some mm. cool new uh, picture right. of, like, you know, one day we're going to be living out here. Right, exactly. But the one day seemed a lot closer than, than it does now, right? Yeah. Um, but at the, at the most, you can say that that space colony fever that was going on in the 70s definitely laid the groundwork, paved the way for where we are now, which sure. is living in space— we just don't have, like, Stanley Kubrick-esque space hotels that are big rotating wheels at the moment. Not doesn't yet. mean we're not going to. Yeah. It just didn't happen as fast as everybody thought it was going to. And I, I was trying to figure out why, and apparently it's because of the shuttle program. Like, the these this space colony fever uh-huh. was based on the idea that launching the space shuttle was going to be way cheaper than launching any of the rockets had been previously. Yeah. That didn't pan out to be the case. Yeah. And that there would be something like... Um, like it was going to be like a space taxi. I remember those yeah. words 60, being used. Like at least 60 launches a year, yeah. which is which didn't pan out to be the case either. But they thought that, yeah, it was just gonna, we were going to be going back and forth to space for like next to nothing yeah. all the time and that we would be colonizing space pretty quickly. That didn't pan out. Um, the space shuttle program didn't, didn't pan out to be that uh, as cheap or as frequent um, and so this dream of space colony or this enthusiasm for space colonization was kind of lost. But luckily, it wasn't lost by the actual engineers who were in charge of putting people in space and figuring out how to live in space. And that whole idea is probably still coming. It's oh, sure. just a little further down the road. Yeah, and there are there are many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of people that helped make this reality over the years. But a lot of this can be laid at the feet of Mr. Werner von Braun, who uh, was the architect of the U.S. space uh, program, and he was the, the the big champion of space stations early on, like in a real uh, viable way. Well, he was like the Carl Sagan of his day. He realized yeah. that uh, he he had a quote. He said that we can publish scientific papers and treatises till hell freezes over, but if we don't get the attention of the taxpayer, we're going. Yeah. We're not going anywhere. And how do you do that? You start putting people on the moon. And start building space stations. Well, even even more basic than that, he started. He wrote like popular articles in popular magazines to get the public's imagination primed for that kind of thing. Yeah, and his idea was it was it was not just like, hey, look at a neat thing we can do. It's, you know, you have an Antarctic outpost. You have uh, back in the old days, you had an out west outpost. He was like, right. we need an outpost. We need a, a place where people can live and work. And as their base station, essentially. Sure. Space is a frontier, but yeah. you watch Star Trek knows that. <laughs> the final frontier, right? Well, that's what we think. That's what we thought back then. Right. I'm sure there's other frontiers. New dimensions to explore. Sure. That kind of thing. Right. Uh, 
Well, let's just talk about why. What what are some of the reasons we should do this? Um, you mentioned um, just capturing the public, and, and it certainly would would do a lot to rally people around spending funds on, you know, space travel, NASA, allocating funds toward this kind of thing. Right. You mean you like, like space tourism? No, no, no. Not space tourism, but just uh, initially, you know, they needed the support of the, the popular American right. opinion. Right. Which is why Von Braun said, I'm going to like reach out to the public directly through Collier's Magazine. He did a three-part, he hosted a three-part show um, on like the wonderful world of Disney about oh, living yeah. in space. Great show. And it really got people jazzed about this back in the 50s. Yeah. Then it peaked again in the 70s, like I was saying. Yeah, but one of the big reasons that you would want to have a working space station is um, aside from the convenience of, you know, having a, a, a having it up there and not having to go back and forth every time you want to do something. Right. Is to, things are different up there and you can do different things without gravity that you can't do here on Earth. Right. Like research. Yeah, like remarkable things. So uh, it turns out gravity has a weird effect on crystals and the way they form. It flaws them. Yeah. Like inevitably. Um, but if you're out there in microgravity, there are far fewer flaws and the crystals tend to form more perfectly. So you can do things like make really good semiconductors, right? Yeah. For microchips. Sure. Um, you can also crystallize drugs better. Yeah. To make them uh, more potent. You yeah, can so, really knock your socks off. So research up there that w- can make things better here. Right. Is and the point. Not just research, but figure out how to do it there. Yeah. And then build on that by building a, a manufacturing facility for semiconductors out in space. Yeah, man. And then bring them back to Earth and be like, watch how fast this baby goes. <laughs> uh, another thing that uh, no gravity or microgravity does is it makes flames... Um, you know, flames here on Earth, with our stupid gravity pulling it in every direction, makes the flame very unsteady and unpredictable. Makes studying combustion more difficult. Remember when we talked about fire? Yeah, fire in space is very consistent and, and perfect. It's, it's round. Yeah, it's so cool. So you could you could potentially with uh, with a perfect flame like that, then perfect flame. There's got to be a song. Eternal flame is what you're thinking of. No, I'm saying perfect flame. Mm. No, you're thinking of Eternal Flame. <laughs> Such a Joshism. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, microgravity, though, you can have that Eternal Flame that is perfect <laughs> and round. And uh, you can study combustion in a more pure fashion. And you could build a better furnace, maybe, or find out how to reduce air pollution by making things more efficient. Right. And this is just like two things that you could do in space. I'm sure there are a thousand things we could list. Right. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, some of the early ideas for space stations were these were concepts that were that used like moon mined min- minerals and materials yeah. and assembled in space so that you didn't have to launch them from Earth. Yeah. So this whole idea of like creating things in space was even used to form the basis of these places where we would actually live while we were doing this stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it also offers a unique perspective on the Earth. Uh, if we're talking about landforms and uh, oceans, your atmosphere, uh, speaking of which, they can take uh, much better pictures looking in the other direction into deep space because they don't have that pesky atmosphere in the way. Right. So lots of great reasons to be up there, um, not the least of which is uh, something you mentioned earlier, space tourism, which is is going to happen at some point. Right. Like... People are looking into, who is this one company um, 
Galactic Suite. Yeah, they... They're, they're still at it. Well, now that I saw, their oh, site really? still says they're planning on launching in 2012. Oh, I thought that they... Uh, I thought they were still kind of... I mean, obviously not on that timeline. Right. Uh, unless they... I mean, their site's still up. Machine. Somebody's still paying for the domain. <laughs> that doesn't mean much. But it still says, like, um, they're going to be... They're going to... Head for the star, the stars in 2012, and then I found another Russian one that was uh, looked pretty promising, but their site apparently was not updated since 2010. Mm. But um, a company called um, Bigelow Industries very recently um, had SpaceX ferry a capsule up to the ISS. It was an inflatable capsule that was a habitat module that was meant to be a prototype for a space hotel okay. and they they couldn't get it inflated it was in uh, yeah. they they just aborted the mission but um like people are still working on the concept of of space tourism like today well i know the galactic suite said um they're like we we think it'll cost 4 million dollars for a weekend stay mm-hmm. and uh our data suggests that there are about 40,000 people in the world that can and will pay for this so um maybe maybe their their site hasn't been updated because they got scared with the end of the world 2012 <laughs> thing. Maybe. And while they were hiding in a cave somewhere somebody played a prank <laughs> on them and they're still too scared to come out and update the site. Maybe. Well, Richard Branson, you know, he's trying to fly people into space still. Yeah, I looked at that. I was like, "Wait a minute. Does this Alaskan Airlines merger did that kill Virgin Galactic?" And apparently not. It was just Virgin America that right. that Alaskan Airlines took over apparently in a hostile takeover, um, but Virgin Galactic's still at it. Okay, well that's good, I guess if you're loaded and want to ride in space. Yeah, if you're uh, Ashton Kutcher or oh, Katy yeah. Perry, they were on the list, right? Sure, they have disposable income. Sure, send the cooch up there. <laughs> right. The cooch, either one. <laughs> uh, I feel like I should take a break and regroup. And then we'll start talking about uh, space stations past. I'll take one with you. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. 
She's a wise man, Marie is a wise woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about the first one, Josh. Uh, We had a great episode on the space race. It was pretty much a two- Love that one. A two-nation uh, race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Sure. And uh, they beat us in a lot of ways as far as first to the punch. Man, they really did. You know? They uh, they don't get enough credit around these parts for the stuff that they did as far as space goes. Because well, they yeah. definitely did beat us in a lot of ways. Sure. Like, and we beat you, them to the moon, basically. Yeah, which we pointed out in our show really got us going. Sure. And led to our advancements. Yeah, but also, what was it? Um, there was another show we did recently. Sputnik led to Super Bowls. But do you remember we were talking about the Super Bowl, in the Super Bowl episode, how Sputnik, like, made America, post-war America, wake yeah. up and be like, hey, stop being coddled and, and lazy. Yeah. We need to, like, get back to... to Innovation. Yeah, innovating sure. again. And, and it was Sputnik that did that. Yeah, that's right. Um, nothing like the threat of communist Russia or Soviet <laughs> Union to get people going. Or being left behind. Um, so back then they were the Soviet Union, and they were the first, as we said, with the uh, Salyut 1 station. Uh, 1971, dude. They had people living in space. Yeah. The year I was born. It's crazy. Yep. And it was actually a combination of a couple of... A uh, different system. Uh, one, the Almaz and the Soyuz. The Almaz was a, a military system, and the Soyuz is, was the actual spacecraft that ferried people to and fro. They're still using that thing. That's yeah. how American astronauts get to the ISS is on Soyuz um, rockets. Oh, really? Yeah. What what number are they at, I wonder? Oh, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? A, a lot. Yeah, they launch a lot. them a lot from <laughs> Kazakhstan, I think. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Very nice. Uh, so the one was um, one. Uh, 45 feet long, um, had three main compartments, um, your, your standard compartments, which are like dining and recreation, hmm. uh, food and water storage, got to have your toilet, uh, exercise equipment, and then your sciencey stuff. Yeah, that sciencey stuff, that's a big deal. Sure. Because not only are they looking at how to make crystals better, 
They're also studying um, the effects of microgravity on the human body, which we're still getting a handle on. Yeah, we should do an entire episode on how space affects your body. Okay. I think that would be like, I think I got three or four episode ideas out of this one article. Well, yeah, we should do one just on the ISS too. I think so. Um, But, well, just kind of briefly, one of the things that they found so far about living in space is that your bone mineral density decreases by 1% a month, which are like 1%. There's still 99% left. Who cares? Yeah, right. Here on Earth, if you're an, a senior adult, you lose about 1% of bone mass a year. Whoa. So that's pretty significant. And another thing that they found out was that the living in microgravity, when you're here on Earth, your fluids and blood and stuff tend to accumulate in your lower extremities, yeah. right? Uh, in microgravity, it tends to accumulate up in your upper body, in your upper chest, and in your head. And your brain's like, whoa, I'm I'm bathed in this stuff. I need to shut down production on fluids, yeah. including blood, so that when astronauts get back on Earth, they tend to be fainty. Oh wow! Because they they don't have enough blood for a while until their body's like, whoa, something weird just happened. I need to start making blood. And they say I'm fainty because of space. Somebody give me some tang. My blood sugar's low. Uh, the other thing they found out was that in space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, they try it. 15 after every hour, all the astronauts scream as loud as they can, and nobody can hear them. And that, of course, was a famous tagline from the first Alien movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember seeing the ad with the big egg yeah. in space, no one can hear you scream. I know. I was just teasing. I thought, that's terrifying. I'm going to watch it. Yep. Uh, oh, one other thing that they're uh, learning about effects and gravity. So Scott Kelly, the astronaut who famously just spent a year on the ISS. Yeah. Um, he has a twin who's also an astronaut. Oh, wow. I believe his name is Mike. And um, Mike has been studied here on Earth. Yeah, I was about to say you got to split those guys up. Over the same, over the same year that um, Scott has. Yeah. And now they're comparing them. Apparently, Scott came down and he was like an inch or two shorter than his identical twin no brother. No way. That was just one thing. But they're, they're examining them on a genetic level to see what differences have have happened wow. so you, they can get a better handle on what living in gravity Crazy. does to the human body. So he said I'm shorter and more fainty, <laughs> for starters. <laughs> he just fell dead away, and they just slapped his face and poured tang down <laughs> his throat. Well, I think what's lost on a lot of people is that these are real, I mean, human experimentation is going on, and who knows what the long-term effect is going to be. These people are really, like, sacrificing potentially, you know? Right. I mean, not just being away from family and stuff, but... Who knows? Fainty might turn into something really bad. In well, not 20, only that, years. they're also exposed to solar radiation yeah. and just space radiation that the Earth's atmosphere protects mo- us from. Yeah, they're exposed to it, and um, apparently, there's a huge possibility that their lifetime risk of cancer just goes through the roof from oh, living wow. out there. So, yeah, there's a lot of questions we have. That it's good that we're not all just living out in space because we can. We got a lot of right. stuff to figure out beforehand. Heroes, sir, is what I say. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Soyuz 10 crew um, for that very first uh, Salyut uh, space station that Russia had, they were they were supposed to live up there, uh, but they couldn't dock correctly, so they could never enter the space station. So they never could even get in. Big, uh, big disappointment. Yeah, they so, just weren't. Yeah, they just hung their heads and <laughs> put it in reverse, and the. Little module went beep. Yep, all the way beep, back to Earth. So the Soyuz 11 crew actually successfully lived there uh, for 24 days in 1971, which is remarkable. But uh, very sadly, mm-hmm. uh, they all perished uh, upon reentry 
coming back to Earth. Yeah, they're um, capsule depressurized, and yeah. they the their capsule at the time wasn't designed for them to wear suits, so they um, they were all asphyxiated. Yeah, just like died instantly, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, very they would sad. have like lost consciousness almost immediately. Uh, so after the eleven Soyuz eleven, they launched uh, a different space station altogether, the Salyut two. Uh, that one didn't even get up into orbit, so they were like, ah, yet. Went through three, four, and five uh, in pretty quick succession. Um, and each one, basically, they got better at getting people to and from, and they could stay up there longer and longer. Yeah, I think the last one was launched in 1982, and it was up there until, like, 1992 or 1994. And they actually used it as, like, a um, they, they, when they launched the Mir, which we'll talk about in, I think, 1996. So I guess it was up there then. They were going back and forth between Sully at seven and the mirror. Yeah, I guess probably going like oh, we can, we can use this vodka over here. <laughs> got to go get it from Solute and take it over to the mirror. So it was up there for a while. They they got there. They they figured it out. And one of the big differences between the early Solutes, Chuck, and the later ones was that there was a docking, a secondary docking module. Yeah, the first ones only had one parking space essentially. Right. And so you had the parking space for the crew that was there, yep. and if they needed supplies, well, TS for nowhere, them. Nowhere to park. But if you had a second docking port, then you can use, um, well, they used an unmanned ship called Progress yeah. to ferry supplies from Earth to the Solute stations. Yeah, I'm surprised that it took them up to the Solute 6 to realize they needed another parking space. <laughs> yeah, because you know? you're going to forget something. Right. You left the iron on back so, home. We're stuck up here. No one can visit us. Exactly. Essentially. Well, like you said, though, they figured it out, which is wonderful. Uh, and that all led to the United States in 1973 uh, launching their uh, very famous Skylab 1 space station. Which has the best patch of any NASA-related, oh, any space-based anything. Skylab 1 is the best. Yeah, Skylab was awesome, but it um, it got off on a very bad start, on a bad foot, because uh, upon launch, like just getting it out there, mm-hmm. uh, it had these two main solar panels. Uh, one of them was completely ripped off. Mm-hmm. The other one didn't uh, extend out like it should have. And so this thing almost burned up completely initially because it had very little power and they couldn't control the, the heat. Right. They couldn't cool it. The interior of the capsule went up to like 126. Yeah. So they said, hey, guys. That's hot. We need you to, to go up there and fix this. And they actually, there were three different crews that were that were sent to Skylab on Apollo capsules. Yeah. And um, the Skylab module itself was actually designed roughly initially by Werner von Braun um, out of a Saturn V moon rocket. Yeah. The third stage of it became Skylab. And I think... At the um, Air and Space Museum in Washington, not the one at Dulles, but the the one that's in like the like around the mall. Yeah, and I think it has a replica of Skylab you can walk through. Oh, cool! Which is so awesome, wow, dude. I would love to do that. But so the the three crews that got sent up there, Chuck, they managed to kind of like put Skylab back together with duct tape and bubble gum. Yeah, that first one, Skylab two, they just sent them up a week and a half after the the fa- well, not failed launch, but problematic launch, mm-hmm. and it's so funny how some of this NASA stuff is so simple. They said, go up there and essentially uh, take this big sunshade, like it looks like an umbrella, and pop it open right. to cool it down. And then see that, that solar panel that didn't stretch out far enough? Stretch it out. 
<laughs> See that? <laughs> Stretch it out. And they did. Uh, Commander Charles Pete Conrad, Paul Weitz, and Joseph Kerwin essentially saved Skylab. Yeah. Right off the bat. And not just them. There were, again, there were three crews that kind of did one after the other. Oh, yeah. They didn't overlap. Um, but they finally got the thing working. And I think the last crew spent 84 days in orbit. Yeah. The, the first one spent 28. Uh, the next one, 59. And the final one, 84 days. In the 70s. And I remember, um, and this is a big deal, you know, this is the first time they were testing these long-duration uh, manned missions mm-hmm. um, to see, like, you know, can we go to the moon? Because it takes a while to get there and back. Right, that was the thing. Like, all the only data we had was on moon missions, which is about a two-week mission. Yeah. So we didn't have any data on what happened to people longer than that. Yeah, can we can we set up a shop there? Can right. we colonize the moon even? So they called anything over two weeks a long-duration space flight. Uh, and I remember in 1979, I remember being a little eight-year-old kid, and I remember hearing about, because this is, you know, in the 70s when families would sit around and watch the news, and right. that's like how you got all your information. Yeah. And I remember sitting around and hearing that Skylab is coming back down to Earth uh, in an unpredictable way. And I remember being sort of scared and thinking, like, wow, this is a little weird and kind of a big deal. Yeah. Like, even little eight-year-old Chuck knew, like, something didn't seem quite right. There were a lot of people who were really anxious about it because NASA very famously said that um, everybody calm down. There's there's a 1 in 152 chance that somebody will be killed by Skylab. Well, yeah. they, they <laughs> Like, they, 1 in 152. <laughs> You want to hear numbers from NASA like one yeah. in a million or one in a billion, not one in 152. Yeah, you're like, I know 200 people. <laughs> I know 153 people. Uh, it also forced NASA to admit um, we were so excited about getting this thing up there, we didn't really think a lot about how to control its descent mm-hmm. um, because that was essentially the story. They, right. they were like, we can't. We don't really know how to guide this thing back down. They said it would, quote, cost too much to have um, designed in a way to bring it down safely. Yeah, and I think they were they were in a hurry. Well, also the problem is, is they thought that, that it would just its orbit would decay a little bit and then fall into basically that orbit of space chunk yeah. circling the Earth and would just stay there indefinitely. Sure. But its orbit decayed more than expected because there was solar flare activity that NASA hadn't anticipated. And so all of a sudden, Skylab's on a collision course with Earth. NASA's saying it'll it'll probably enter somewhere over this thousand kilometer stretch of earth that includes australia so heads up australia right and um there were lots of like skylab parties um yeah because it's america in the 70s people went like skylab crazy disco parties yeah oh yeah um and uh, the san francisco examiner actually um offered ten thousand dollars to anybody who could bring in a legitimate piece of skylab within 72 hours of it crashing yeah and some kid actually collected yeah, an Australian. Yeah. He got on a plane. He had a little piece of Skylab. Mm-hmm. Because where did it end up crashing in the... Uh, Esperance, Australia, near Perth. Yeah, I mean, mostly in the ocean. Yeah. But uh, they did get a, a pretty good amount of debris in Australia. Yeah, like sizable parts. But it's Australia. They're tough. They're like, everything tries to kill us. Your, yeah. Your silly space station can't do it. Right. So, uh, like, yeah, this kid flew over in San Francisco and said, here, pay here's, up. Here's a piece of Skylab. Yeah, his name was Stan Thornton. He was 17. And, like, without even thinking twice about it, he grabbed it, hopped on a plane, and went to San Francisco, like you said. And uh, the examiner paid him. 
yeah. which I did the West Egg inflation calculator. Uh-oh. That's about $33,000 in today's money. Not bad. No, I'd, I'd do that. I'd he hop could, on he, a plane for that. That's a salary of a first-year teacher. Right. Sadly. Yeah. Uh, you can also buy pieces of Skylab today if you've got some dough and an internet connection. Uh, alleged pieces of Skylab. Well, sure. Just like anything, it should be uh, not verified. What do you call it? Verified. Authenticated? Yeah, authenticated. Uh, supposedly, NASA, uh, instead of exerting its domain over pieces of Skylab, the debris that was found and saying, you give us back that, some people sent their pieces to NASA. NASA authenticated them and sent them back, mounted saying this is an official piece of Skylab to oh, the people nice. who mailed it in. Good peeps. Not bad. Good peeps wearing brown polyester pants <laughs> up to their chests. All right, buddy, let's take a break and um, let's go uh, for a little jog around our 100% gravity office. Okay. And then we'll talk about uh, Mir and ISS. All right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh-huh. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. 
I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we talked about uh, the the Soviet, which was the Soviet Union's big first success, and some failures. But overall, I think they saw it as a success. Right, and at the same time, a couple of years later, America had Skylab, and then the Soviets said, "We can do better than than what we're doing. We can do better than anybody else. We're going to create the mirror." Yeah, and by the way, Skylab was not supposed to be permanent. No. Uh, that was never the intention. But Mir was, was it supposed to be permanent? Mir? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So were the later um, uh, Soliets. Okay. So the Mir definitely was meant to be a, a permanent one. All right. Well, the first crew, cosmonauts uh, Leonid Kizim, Vladimir Solyov. Solovyov? Nice. It's a great name. Um, I think it was just those two dudes. Uh, they shuttled between the Salyut 7, which mm-hmm. was being retired, and Mir. And there was some, like you said, it, there was some crossover there, right? An overlap. The, they, they had to get the vodka. Yeah, they had to get the vodka. Right. Uh, and they spent 75 days on the Mir, and it was continually manned uh, over the next 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, manned and built. It's not, they, they build these things out there or assemble them out there, um, I guess we should say. But they don't just launch a space station. Right, like they, they like carry, ready to go. They carry pieces of it out there, right? Uh, just like ISS, and they put them together. Although I think, as we'll see later on, I think the Chinese launched a full space station. Oh, really? Yeah. Of course they did. I think they did. Um, but we're talking 2013. Come on. <laughs> so the Mir had twelve um, twelve main parts, which we won't go over all those because we don't like to just read lists. But, you know, it's so, everything you would expect. It was a G-Wiz space station. Yeah, a lot of science stuff, a lot of, lot of modules, living quarters, transfer compartments, docking places. Right. They had more than one parking space. They figured that old mess out. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, you know, we should have guests. And they did have guests. They had American guests, actually. They sure did. Which was pretty cool. It wasn't until the 90s after the Soviet Union dissolved. And actually, there was a cosmonaut aboard Mir when the Soviet Union dissolved on December 26, 1991, um, his name uh, was Sergei Kirkov, Kirkov. It's harder to say than you would think. Yeah. Uh, and he was known as the last Soviet citizen because apparently being in space made him immune from the, the dissolving of the Soviet Union. Oh, really? Yeah. Not really, but that's what everybody said about him, whether he liked it or not. Well, the mirror that had some problems kind of later in its life. There was an, a fire one year, uh, and then uh, that pro- the supply ship was called the Progress, I think you mentioned. It actually crashed into the mirror trying to park in its little parking space, uh, which damaged it. And at that point, they said, you know what? Uh, we should just make this thing space junk, even though we thought it was going to be permanent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. is talking about this ISS station they want us to come help them with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a big campaign to keep the mirror alive called Keep Mirror Alive. Uh, and private corporations stepped in and said, no, let us take it over. Let's privatize this thing. 
and they said, Niet, not going to do it. Yeah, we're not going to just hand over a space station, okay? No, we're going to crash it into the Earth. (laughs) If I can't have you, no one can. Pretty much. So um, they had a little bit uh, more advanced capabilities than Skylab had as far as directionally. Um, and in February 2001, it uh, they slowed those engines down, and it re-entered the atmosphere on March 23rd, 2001. Burned up, broke up, and again uh, tried to kill Australia. I know Australia's like, what the H? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, why is everyone trying to land their space junk on us? Right. Uh, but it was about a thousand miles east of Australia in the ocean. Um, has anyone found these things? That's what I was wondering. Mir? Yeah, is Mir I'm at sure. the bottom of the ocean? I'm sure somebody's found some parts of it. Pretty neat. Yeah. Talk about, like, space wreckage at the bottom of the ocean. That's a movie. Who was it? Was it Jeff Bezos that went and got, like, uh, one of the Apollo stages that had been scuttled in the ocean recently? Probably. I think it was Jeff Bezos. Or James Cameron. We talk about him too much, though. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to ISS. 1984, Ronald Reagan uh, said, you know what? I was about to do a Reagan, but I thought the better. I think everybody wants to hear your Reagan. No, I don't want to do it. He said, let's, let's, he said, hey man, let's get an ISS station going. (laughs) That's a dead on Reagan. (laughs) Is that good? Yeah. Uh, We'll call it the International Space Station and (laughs) it's going to be super expensive. So we need some help. Um, Let's partner up with, with 14 other countries, Canada, Japan, Brazil, and then the European Space Agency which is the UK, France, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Spain, Switzerland, Sweden. And he said, as a good faith measure, let's invite the Soviets. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was all. Well, no, it was to... Russia by then. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. And the Russians said, sure, why not? We're and, not doing anything. And not just being uh, friendly, but, you know, they they were probably the second leading, uh, uh, well, I don't know, by that point. There were other players Going. What, in space science? Yeah, but they were still pretty highly regarded. I sure, think. yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah, probably more than they get credit for, again, over here. Agreed. So they started putting the ISS in orbit in 1998, and um, the first people showed up from, it was launched, for, they were launched from Russia yeah. in 2000, and they spent about five months there, like basically getting everything up and running, Man. taking um, all of the, uh, the little desiccant packets out of everything. <laughs> like the do not eat things that keep stuff yeah, dry. What is that? A uh, silica gel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, pulling off all of the cellophane from everything. Uh huh. Well, they left it on the lampshades, which I thought was tasteless. Yeah, well, it's shiny. Yeah. Um, so they've been living up there. Like I said, they just launched the, the 100,000th, I'm sorry, the 47th, but 100,000th orbit of Earth. And. Um, We'll and do one on the ISS. I, I really think we should. But I did look a little bit into their day-to-day life. Um, they work about 10 hours a day, uh, Monday through Friday, about half that on a Saturday, and then they take Sunday off. And then the rest of the time is, you know, relaxation, uh, emailing your family. Hanging out poolside. FaceTiming. Yeah. Um, they have 16 sunrises and sunsets a day, which is decidedly weird on your body. So they generally just keep those windows closed so they can get on a reg sketch. And um, apparently the food isn't great. They don't love the food. No. Um, and they have to overspice it. I didn't know this. One of the things space does is 
uh, reduce your sense of taste. I've heard that. In microgravity. I think it makes everything taste like styrofoam. Yeah, so apparently they like really overspice everything to try and make it palatable. Um, and they have to be really careful of crumbs uh, because... Oh, yeah. Remember Homer Simpson? I do remember. <laughs> One of the great all-time scenes. Yeah. When he opened the bag of chips in space. Great, great scene. Um, and then pooping and pee-pee. Got, got to go somewhere. They have two toilets Goes on the Goes in ISS. the new guy's chair. Only two. And... Um, well, oh, there's usually only three or four people up there. No, there's six right now. Oh, six. Yeah. With two toilets? Yeah. How many hair dryers? Who knows? They keep their hair short, though, because... Because uh, there's very few hair dryers in space. Well, there's no showers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can wash themselves. They have, and, like, water yeah. jets, but... Not the same. Yeah, not the same. Man, I'll bet that first shower when they get back down to Earth feels so good. Yeah. Uh, but there's two toilets. They use a fan-driven suction system, and uh, you have to latch yourself to the toilet... Oh, yeah, I've heard that, too. And there are restraining bars to ensure there's a good seal because, uh-huh. you know, what happens if there's not a good seal in microgravity, things will float away. Uh, and then there's a lever that they hit, a suction hole slides open, and a big stream of air carries the waste away. Uh, the solids are collected, actually, into an aluminum container, and the uh, they're then transferred to the Progress to take away the little shuttle ship. Like, here's all our poop. Yeah, progress is like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why they call it progress. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the pee-pee uh, is evacuated by a hose uh, that's attached to the front of the toilet. Do they drink it? Uh, they do. Oh, man. I was getting there, but sure. I'm sorry. No, it's recycled. It's a recovery system, and they eventually recycle it back into drinking water. It tastes like chicken. Um, and the uh, toilets uh, for pee-pee are anatomically correct. Uh, they have these funnel adapters, so men and women have different uh, adapters because, mm-hmm. you know, they have different parts. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> they do have different parts. Said that like so a second grader. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you don't think about this stuff. Like, that's the first thing I thought of was like, oh, man, how do they eat? How do they poop? Mm-hmm. But what, do they watch movies? Do they watch movies? Yeah, the, the, um, they just sit back. I think it was The Atlantic had a great photo spread of photos that this new mission is taking uh-huh. of... Uh, space and the earth and, you know, all that stuff, but then pictures on board. And um, one of them, they were they had this huge flat screen watching The Revenant. Watching The Revenant, huh? Yeah. Wow. That's what it looked like. I could see that. There's two guys on a horse. It was hard to tell because it was in the background, but mm. I think it was The Revenant. That or Cloudy with a Chance of Meatball. <laughs> probably not the movie Gravity. So, yeah, no. They were probably like, that could never happen. Remember when Neil deGrasse Tyson lost his mind about gravity? Hey, he's your pal. He went on a Twitter rant about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, then, then we should talk about the Chinese, because I think it'd be unfair not to. Sure. The Chinese launched something called uh, Tiangong-1. Um, back in 2003, they became the third nation on the planet to launch a human into space. Mm-hmm. Um, and they launched their uh, space their space station yeah. in 2011 and there's been two um two missions to to the space station i think it's 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 no longer active but it's still up there but the chinese admitted uh this year that they've lost contact with the space station Ooh. it's no longer under their control wow so it may end up coming back down to earth and we'll have a new skylab party for it right 
But the um, the two missions included China's first two uh, women astronauts, Liu Yang and Wang Yaping. And um, they were in 2012 and 2013. And they did, I mean, they lived in space for a while, just like yeah. everybody else had. But the Chinese don't participate in the ISS. I don't know if they've not been invited yeah. or if they declined an invitation, but they're doing their own parallel thing, um, which I, I get the impression that's making people nervous. Interesting. Well, I know it's important that they've uh, had uh, uh, women uh, astronauts, female astronauts on the ISS, uh-huh. because, you know, you you need to see what space does to them. And I just wonder if they're going to, like, get to the point where they're like, well, we need to, if we really want to colonize space, we need to see what happens when a, a baby is up there or give birth in <laughs> outer space. <laughs> yeah. Or have a 10-year-old or a 75-year-old. Um, man, a 10-year-old aboard a space station for, like, it. a year? Yeah. Oh, man. No, thank you. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to mention, Chuck. There's the, uh, there's talk about um, saving a lot, a lot of money mm-hmm. with a space station um, by putting it at what's called a Lagrange point. And there's Lagrange point L4 and L5. Okay. And they are these... Um, these little these spots between the Earth and the Moon, mm-hmm. to where the gravity between the Earth and the Moon is counterbalanced. So all it does is just go in orbit around the Earth and the Moon, and it will stay in that orbit forever because gravity is not pulling on it one way or the other. Wow! So you don't have to use fuel to keep it in that orbit forever, yeah. right? And this is actually like an early idea that that uh, I think Arthur C. Clarke was the first to put it out there in 1961. And these Lagrange points are like 90, the orbit's like 90,000 miles across. So you can put a bunch of space stations in these things and just leave them out there. Huh. And there's actually something called the L5 Society that came about um, that is all about this kind of thing. I bet their parties are wicked crazy. Yeah. Well, they, they uh, plan to disband on a space station in the L5 band at some point in the future. Really? When they all come together there for the first time. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, one more thing. Valery Polyakov. Yeah, record holder, right? Yep. 438 days he did aboard Mir in 1994 wow. to 1995. Man. And he'd done like 238 days before then. Crazy. I bet he's super fainty. <laughs> you know? All the time. He's Russian, though. He can take it. You got anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Well, that's it for space stations for now. If you want to learn more about him, you can type those words in the search bar at How Stuff Works. And uh, since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this, um, oh, oh, Chuck's graduation post. So I put out a post about my nephew graduating high school. Oh, yeah. Did he really? Wow. Yep. Man. Noah has graduated from high school. And also Noah. Uh, the same year, my uh, niece, Reagan, graduated college from Meredith College, mm-hmm. moving to New York City like a good girl. Wow. And my other niece, Abby, moved on, matriculated into high school from middle school. Nothing better than matriculation. <laughs> Nothing better. So I went to Noah's graduation, and it really, like, affected me much more than I thought it would because I haven't been to a graduation since my own. Oh, yeah. Like, And I didn't walk in the college one, so uh-huh. I literally have not been to a ceremony since 1989. Right. And it just stirred up all these amazing feelings. Oh, I thought you were going to say it made you mad. No. <laughs> it was really, really neat just to hear these kids and their speeches. And I, and I put a Facebook post. I was like, you know what? We're, we're great. Don't People, millennials get a lot of crap, but like, 
talk to a 17 year old for a little while mm -hmm. who's doing it right and and we're headed in the right direction like this very empathetic caring like forward-thinking generation nice so it was it was a really neat thing so I just congratulations to all the graduates yeah especially um, well if you're listening then I guess you are a listener but all you stuff you should know listeners that have been with us like throughout high school mm -hmm. we appreciate you um, a girl named Hannah I want to say wrote in and asked for any advice for graduates oh that's right and she mentioned you in the speech yeah yeah so pretty congratulations neat. to her as well pretty great stuff but anyway. you're right all stuff you should know listeners who are graduating or matriculating mm -hmm. congratulations yes very big accomplishment so this is from brandy in kansas um hey guys want to thank you so much for that facebook post about noah's graduation and how you have so much hope for the up-and-coming generation i'm really excited about the world changers coming up it's so rare to hear someone come out and say how awesome they are uh, on that thread have you considered it doing a show on kids today fallacy that's a well-documented phenomenon where each generation downplays uh, the bad things their own generation did and believes the ones that follow are lazy, spoiled, entitled. Uh, there are quotes literally dating back to thousands of years ago of this very thing. Wow. Uh, and the music stinks, too. I'm sure that's the other part of that. Uh, yeah. You oh, know. yeah, I'll bet. Or, or no, no, no. Yeah, the music today stinks. Ours right. is better. Uh, I would love to hear you explain this nonsense, help people stop being so crotchety, and instead recognize their role in helping to shape the future generations. Second request, come to Kansas. You guys mm -hmm. make fun of us enough and it's time to pay us a visit. We top some lists for the most beautiful sunsets and landscapes and also have cities on national lists of places to live. It takes more than a beautiful sunset to get us to do a live show. And listicles. <laughs> uh, we make fun of Kansas because of our good friend Aaron Cooper. Yes. And uh, our buddy Isaac McNary was really the two people that we're targeting when we make fun of Kansas. And the governor. And it's all out of love uh, because Isaac and Aaron are great. And we met Aaron at our show in Denver. And he's just as nice and cool as I thought he was going to be. And we met our pal Tyler Murphy, too. And met Tyler. pretty awesome. And uh, his friends Timothy and Sarah. Mm -hmm. And uh, our friend Jane Janab was in the audience. And our old buddy Greg Storkin was in the audience. It was something else. Yeah, Denver was like these, some of our oldest, oldest fans were in attendance. So Plus it was a great show, too. It was wonderful. Anyway, we're not coming to Kansas. Um, <laughs> thanks for a great show, guys. I only have a few episodes left to go before I'm caught up. And then I will enter the pit of despair. Uh, so at least satisfy one of my requests so you can help pull me out. And that is Brandy in Manhattan, Kansas. Thank you, Brandy. Good luck in the pit of despair. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, 
but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.